147 in the church Bibles, that would be of some help to you. We're just going to be taking a little break, if you would, over the Christmas season from Mark. And here we are this morning in Hebrews. We're going to read a couple of passages, one in chapter 1 and and the other in chapter 2. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. In the past, this is Hebrews chapter 1, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. And this is speaking of Jesus. In order that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for sins of the people. Because he himself suffered and he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Okay, let's pray and ask God for his help. Gracious God and Father, yours is the honor and yours is the glory alone. Thank you for bringing us all together this morning. Thank you for the church, the body of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Bible and a live book about Jesus Christ and why he has come to save us and what it is he has done to save us. This morning, God, will you please help us to understand our lesson? Please help me to teach it. Help the listeners to understand it with the end result of bringing glory to your name. And to anyone in need, the saving faith are probably deeper roots in the faith. Now, Father, now would you please show us your glory as your son has preached Amen. While we were singing the Christmas hymns this morning, two things always come to mind. One is happy memories about Christmas past. The songs have stories with them as the years go by. The other thing is how much theology is in these hymns. Basic Christian doctrine that surrounds so much of what we are singing. And the reason why I say that is the constant message of the Bible is to keep your eyes on Jesus. It underpins everything. In the Old Testament, it's keep your eyes on him as the prophets would point to this Messiah that was coming. In the New Testament, it is there he is, there he is now. Now you keep your eyes fixed on him. Hebrews 12, fix your eyes, hold your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The the Puritans understanding our frailty would say for every one look at yourself, Um, Take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. And I would say that you lose your way around the Bible if if you take your eyes off of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. You lose your way around the Bible if you take your eyes off Jesus. We've said this before. In the Old Testament, he's predicted. In the New Testament, he's revealed. In Acts, he's preached. In the epistles, he's explained. Uh, The book of Revelation, he's expected So I say that because I want you to know it is a serious miscalculation to think 
that we make any progress in the Christian life by constantly focusing on our sins and our struggles and ourselves instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus. Listen to John Calvin writing on this. Pray that God would bring us a sense of our safety in Christ Jesus. Resting on the merits of Christ alone. Enjoying the righteousness of Christ. That we may have no other trust than trusting in the righteousness of Christ. So the biblical approach to transformation is not a fundamentally introspective and self-focused. But Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Self-examination has a place. But it does not have the place and it can so quickly lead to this gloomy self-examination or a pride-filled self-examination as in I'm the only one who's getting it or I'm the only one who wants to get it right. And too often then we end up taking the approach to spiritual growth that turns us mostly inward and all that does is reinforce our old nature and our old natural bent towards self-absorption and self-focus and thereby aggravating the problem to begin with. In other words, persistent self-focus. Always um, um, looking inward. Self-centeredness. That's what takes place in our old nature. Jesus made it so clear If you're going to find life, you're going to have to lose your life. So I want to say that Christian maturity never begins by looking inward. Rather, it begins by looking upward to Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful story. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the book a long time ago, The Scarlet Letter. Remember, there was a pastor, Arthur Dimsdale, and he secretly committed adultery. And rather than humbly confessing his sin and turning to Jesus Christ for mercy and help, he, he begins this kind of tragically uh, inward uh, life. Persistent guilt, fasting, self-mutilation and sorrow, not allowing himself to enjoy the victory that Jesus Christ had won for him. And there was no health in him. And as a result, he begins to lose his mind. His health is destroyed. He ruins his soul through the torment of endless self-reflection. Hawthorne writes, He thus typified the constant introspection wherewith he tortured himself, but he could not purify himself. In other words, and listen carefully, and I don't mean to, to do this to you, but especially if you're young, listen carefully. Through religious means, All the spiritual disciplines. He tried to be his own redeemer. That's what he was doing. Religious means. All the Christian disciplines. He tried to be his own redeemer. And loved ones, that kind of introspection, that kind of self-examination, that will only torture you. And it is powerless to purify. There's only one redeemer. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to have a redeemer because God will not allow our disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished and and God will not accept our righteousness. Yes, the things we fail to do but don't are horrible. Yes, the things we do but shouldn't. They are an offense to God. And the righteous anger of God is there. But the grace of God offered in Jesus our redeemer covers over that and frankly just blows it all away. 
And as a redeemer, Jesus redeems believers from every form, every form of sin's bondage and oppression through his death and resurrection, which was the price of our redemption. Quite a sentence, isn't it? Right? As the redeemer, Jesus redeems believers from all the multitude of forms of sin's bondage and oppression through his death and resurrection, the price of our redemption. His life a ransom paid to secure the freedom that we need. So, so what is that freedom? Well, follow along. Jesus Christ alone redeems us from the curse of the law. That's Galatians 3.13. Jesus Christ alone redeems us from empty religion. Colossians 2.20. Jesus Christ alone redeems us from the power of Satan. Colossians 1.13. Jesus Christ alone redeems us from the coming judgment, the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Jesus Christ alone redeems us from death itself. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Jesus Christ alone believe, uh, redeems believers so that their sins may be forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7. I'm not through. Jesus Christ alone redeems believers to make them pure. Titus 2, 14. Jesus Christ alone redeems believers so that they may receive God's promised blessing. Uh, take your pick in the New Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 1, every promise that God makes is yes and amen in Christ. So I have a book. I have lots of books, but I have a book that I love and I kind of keep it with me everywhere I go. And the book is, has the title, The Incomparable Christ. In light of the redemption... The intent of the title makes complete sense to me. Jesus Christ, specifically as our Redeemer, has no equals. This is why the apostles preach Christ. There's no one like Jesus. On this earth, there will never be anyone like Jesus. So do you know anyone who says the right thing, does the right thing, all the time, every time, heart in, for the exact right reasons? Only Jesus. Do you know anyone who can make dead people alive, who can calm storms and waves just by speaking to them? Put disease away just by speaking to them. No, only Jesus. Do you, do you know anyone who's never told a lie? A little white lie, big fat lie? No, only Jesus. Jesus Christ is incomparable in his birth. He is incomparable in his life. He is incomparable in his death. And he is certainly incomparable in his resurrection and ascension. All the mighty acts which were part and parcel of our redemption. So we have a lesson right before us. And clearly then there's no one like Jesus. In many of the titles that Jesus has been given, there is this one. And it's the title of our sermon. He is the Redeemer. So I want to say to you again, as a Redeemer, Jesus redeems believers from every form of sinful bondage and oppression and accusation through his death and resurrection. And the chief price of that, of course, is his life. As he puts his life down. Ransom paid to secure us freedom, to secure for us joy that's fixed always on Jesus and not what we do or fail to do. And so historically, when the church asks the question, who's the Redeemer? The answer is this. Our only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, and whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. Right? So only in Christ do we have one who's truly human and truly God. Only in Christ do we have one who is fit to die for sin and one who is effective in his death for sin. This is Jesus, fit and effective, fit in his humility, effective in, in his divinity. 
So then our next point then is why must the Redeemer be human? Okay, he should be human. He should be God. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? Well, here's the answer from the New City Catechism. I love it. That in his human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law, which we cannot, and suffer the punishment for human sin, which we cannot. And also, listen carefully, that he might sympathize with our weakness. Right? Now, to help us understand this, we have to know this, that we human beings are so fallen and we have been fallen for so long that we think that we're the standard, the measure of what it means to be human. So we say, say things like, to err is human, or I'm only human. And so what we begin to do is to think that what it means to be human is based only on what we are, on how we live, how we hope to live, or how we think. And we have no consideration at all of the effects of our fallenness and the brokenness on account of sin. If you like, we become the standard of what it means to be human. And you could do it on either side. You could do it on just the side that doesn't give a rip about Jesus or even the Christian side. We become the standard of what it means to be human. We are, uh, if you would, the way, the truth, and the life. And we define what it means human only by us. Now let me ask you this. If we define what it means to be human only by us, then what do you do with Jesus, who was human, who took upon himself our humanity, yet was without sin? You see, what you see in Jesus and why it was necessary for him to become human is Jesus is the picture of true humanity. Now get that in your head. Jesus is the picture of what it means to be human. So when he walked this earth, that's the picture of what it truly means to be human. In his humanity, he is the way God created men and women to be. He is what we were meant to be, what we were supposed to be, what the first Adam was created to be, but ruined because of the fall. So in Jesus, we have one who obeyed, kept every commandment, every second of every day, inward, outward, perfect obedience, yet, of course, still human. So it's good to have heroes, right? We should have heroes, people we look, look up to, people whose life we pattern ours after. But clearly, Jesus ought to be the, at the top of our li- list. His life, our aim, his, his life, our pattern. Because his life it, what is, is what it means to be human. And I've been around long enough to know that every generation has that picture of the perfect life. In America, there's a picture of the perfect life. Overseas, there's a picture of the perfect life. But you open up your Bible, you look at Jesus, perfect life. The Bible teaches the first human, Adam, having sinned, is followed by the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who was human, who knew no sin. Now, let's think about his humanness just for a minute. Jesus Christ was born into this world as an actual person, so he grew to a certain height. His hair had a certain color, certain length, unless his mom made him cut it. (laughs) He would speak a certain language. He weighed so many pounds. He ate. He slept. He dreamed. I mean, think of that. The eternal God who knows everything and created the whole universe became human. Enters the world, as we know, as a baby. 
So that in Jesus, our Redeemer, we have in one man what we were made to be, what God intended each of us to be, who can identify with us at every point of our life, even from our birth, yet was without sin. The multitude of temptations that he faced, never failing once. We have no idea what that feels like because we give in to temptation. This is why it's so important that what we see in Jesus Christ is perfect righteousness. The supplier of our righteousness. Now just get that. The supplier of our righteousness is Jesus. Because all the righteousness we will ever need to be right with God. And to enter into his heaven. Was given to us at our conversion. And you see what Jesus does then in his humanity is nothing short of a miracle. Because in his humanity Jesus offers to God everything that we owe God. Paid full. And not only does Jesus offer to God everything that we owe God, namely perfect obedience, but the very punishment that should have been ours in our disobedience, Jesus, of course, pays for as he suffers and dies on the cross. We told this to the kids during their Awana lesson a few weeks ago. For Jesus to suffer and die on our behalf is like you and I doing something wrong and our parents find out and they say, kids... The punishment that you should get, I, we are going to take ourselves, right? This is the husband telling the wife, honey, you did mess up, but I'll take the blame and the punishment. Not because I'm afraid of you. See? And because Jesus was human, he's able to sympathize with our weakness, right? Now think with me. He doesn't scream, what's the matter with you? It's not Jesus. He doesn't say, will you just snap out of it? He doesn't try to use scare tactics and threats to to get us along the way. He doesn't say, listen, I am so ashamed of you. How could he? He doesn't hold wicked thoughts, mistrust, and evil thoughts about us, in his head, like we may be tempted to do to others. No, he is a merciful high priest. Hebrews 2.7, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful. The Greek word is filled with pity. In fact, it's a word meaning covenant loyalty. This is family loyalty here. I'm going to show you mercy because we're family. Faithful high priest in service to God that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. So in every way he was made like you and I and the result of this is that he may take pity over you and I to show mercy to you and I to be merciful. It's in James, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the spirit of Jesus, mercy, pity towards his redeemed people. Therefore, because we are in Christ, he doesn't condemn us in our sin. Because of the cross, the penalty was fully paid. Rather, he sympathizes us with us in our sin. I was thinking Romans 8, right? If God is for you, this is Paul's logic. If God is for you, who can be against you? And he has all these great who. Who will bring any charge against you? The rhetorical questions, no one can. Who can condemn you? No one can. Not even God, Romans 8, 1. Who shall speak uh, or who shall separate you from the love of Christ? It's, it's Yul Brenner in The King and I. Who, 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 who? 
You should watch it. No one. No one. Why? Because I'm really trying hard these days. No. You you should see my prayer life. Outstanding. No. Because I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. By the man. Christ Jesus. Hebrews 2, my faithful high priest in service to God. He did his duty well and he made atonement for my sins. All of them. There's a song that was written by an African pastor a long time ago. Not for my righteousness, for I have none. But for his mercy's sake, Jesus, God's son, suffered on Calvary's tree, crucified with thieves was he. Great was his grace to me, his wayward one. And when I think of how at Calvary he bore sin's penalty instead of me, amazed I wonder why he, the sinless one, should die for one so vile. As I, my Savior, he. You see, we'll never really know. Let me say it like this. We'll never be able to sing that song with any uh, spirit of truth and amazement and gratitude if we are not glorying in our Lord Jesus Christ and putting absolutely no confidence in our flesh. Final question. Okay, who, who is the Redeemer? Well, our Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who is God and who is man. Uh, why must he have been a truly human? And in his human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law, suffer the punishment for human sin, and that he might sympathize with us in our weakness. Okay, then why must he, the Redeemer, be truly God? Here again, the catechism answer that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. So God says, because of our sin, there is a penalty to be paid. We can't pay it. He puts forth his son, our redeemer. Someone to set us right with God. He has to be fully human. He's got to die a real death. Real blood has to be shed. shed. There's as a punishment for sin. Someone's going to take it, God said. The wages of sin is what? Death. Now we learn that although Jesus was fully human, yep, he's fully God as well. That's why there's no one like Jesus. So again, I remember what the lesson I told the kids from the Oana lesson that when our kids were little, there was a cartoon called Cat Dog, right? And so um, it was weird. It was like half a cat and half a dog shoved together. And like we weren't like uh, cartoon Nazis at our house. We pretty much let kids watch all the cartoons but that was one cartoon it's like you can't watch that guys it just freaks us out there wasn't any spiritual reason behind it it was just like ugh, no cat dog at all spongebob fine but but not but not cat dog so jesus is not like cat dog you know half human half god jesus all human all god eternal god in in flesh well just to make you know that i did do my homework this week and just didn't think about cat dog the church council in Nicaea, 325 AD, with their Bibles wide open. This is what they said, that Christ Jesus was God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. Jesus didn't have a start date. No, begotten of one substance with the Father. And the key phrase is of one substance. The Greek term homoousios, homoousios, that's better, homoousios. Meaning what God is, in essence, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is also. 
In other words, think of it like this way. When you see the Jesus of the gospel, when you hear him preach, you say, that's the God of creation. That's the God over all creation. When you see God, excuse me, when you see Jesus, you see God. When you read the gospels and find out what Jesus did and you find out what he said, you say, there is God. That's what God would say. That's what God would do. So John 8, when that whole lady got caught in the adultery thing, God, that's what God would say. He would say to the people, you without sin, start throwing stones. That's what he would say. Jesus is the one and only son who came from the father. In him, John says, all the fullness of God dwells. That's why we read Hebrews 1 there. Jesus himself, when he walked this earth a number of times, he said he is one with the Father. In fact, on one occasion, the people listening to Jesus, as he said, I and the Father are one, they tried to stone Jesus because they understood what he was saying. We want to stone you because you, a mere man, are claiming you are God. That's blasphemy. But what do we know? Jesus was far more than a mere man. He was God. He was humanity. He was divinity. Okay, so why is it so important that Jesus, as our Redeemer, Be truly God. Here's your answer. Every sin that we commit is ultimately committed towards God. So that when we lie to each other, when we slander, when we gossip, when we hate, when we hurt, when we harm other people, ultimately the Bible teaches us that we are lying, that we are disobeying, we are hurting and harming God. Romans 15, 3, the insults of those who you insult have fallen on me. Right, Whether it's up here or here. And only God can forgive sin against himself. Which is why on another occasion, some of the religious people uh, of Jesus' day, they freaked out when Jesus forgave sin. Because they knew what he was saying. He was God. Because only God can forgive sin. So then on the cross, Jesus being fully God, in order that his obedience and suffering be perfect and God's justice be completely internally satisfied, effective, he dies our death. He dies our death, humanity. Three days later, he is risen, divinity. Acts 2, 24, that God raised him, Christ, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold of him. Why? Jesus is divine. He's God. So here's the issue. Jesus in his humanity lives a life that we should have lived He dies the death that we should have died. He takes our place. And although he perfectly obeyed the law of God and he was innocent, he suffers the wrath of God for our sins. That's his humanity. In his divinity, his obedience is an accepted obedience. It's an effective obedience before the throne of God because Jesus is God's only redeemer. So let me close with this. J.I. Packard in his wonderful book, Knowing God, chapter 13, titled The Grace of God. Listen to what he says. Man as man was and is under the belief that we can prepare our relationship with God by putting God in a position where he has to accept us, say yes to us. So ancient pagans thought that by multiplying gifts and sacrifices, that was the way. Modern pagans do this by churchmanship. And morality, saying they're not perfect, but surely close enough to perfect for God's acceptance. But the Bible says no. 
to mend our relationship with God, regaining God's favor, having lost it, is far beyond the power of any one of us. And to live within that framework will make you very sad, will make you very mad, or make you a liar, pretending you and your sincerity is good enough for God. And you see, and that's the end of Packer, now it's Joe, and until we see what we are and what we need, a Redeemer, not just at the beginning of our Christian life, but all through our Christian life and way past our death, until we see what we are and what we need, a Redeemer, we will never enjoy the Redeemer's love. You'll never enjoy your salvation. In our house, we would say, you're, kinda, you're gonna be a Humpty Grumpty for a long time. The emphasis of the Bible is the work of the Redeemer and not the work of the redeemed. Sometimes I think we might be tempted to think that basic Christian doctrine or Christian doctrine is like algebra, right? We've got to do it. But you know, it's not very useful in, quote, real life. Please don't think you're better than the Bible. <laughs> and please don't think that you know what you need more than your father knows what you need. Father knows best. The very same God that spins things in orbit, runs to the weary, the worn, and the weak. And the same gentle hands that hold me when I'm broken, they conquered death to bring me victory. Now I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. Let all creation testify. Let this life within me cry. I know. My Redeemer lives. He lives to take away my shame. And he lives forever. I'll proclaim that the payment for my sin was the precious life he gave humanity. But now he's alive and there's an empty grave, divinity. And I know my Redeemer, he lives Now, loved ones, with God's help, build your foundation on that. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that the Spirit of God would do the work of God through the Word of God in the lives of those who listen this morning. May you bring us all to a spirit of our safety in Christ Jesus. May you give us the grace to rest on the merits of Jesus Christ alone with our whole being, enjoying the righteousness of Christ, Uh, no other trust but trusting in Jesus. And when we go astray in sin, please give us the grace not to turn inward and do that awful evil thing of demoting the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. Help us to turn upward. Our flesh and our heart will fail us, the psalmist says, but you, God, are our strength. You're the strength of our heart and you are our portion forever. Father, we believe these things. 
But in the time of testing, please, please help us in our unbelief. And Lord Jesus Christ, receive our thanks for your perfect life. For your transforming death. For your mighty resurrection. The certainty of the ascension. And that day, God, that we look forward to more and more now. Your glorious return. May you bless everyone here greatly, God. Whatever their needs are this Christmas season and beyond, their, their concerns, their, their battles indwelling in them, the, the sin that we fight against daily, may your grace abound. May your love and your grace win every day of our lives. Now may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and in Christ give you peace. Amen.